Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and minds to your word and to the unfinished task of your church's mission in the world. Amen. This is Mission Sunday, and our readings this morning were all focusing our attention, along with the songs that we sang, on missions. One of the great things about being the speaker on a Sunday morning is that you know how the songs are actually leading you toward the message. Uh, but the, the whole service is geared toward reminding us of <clears throat> the, uh, the task of mission of the church, which I want to call this morning the unfinished task. The unfinished task. We have some slides that are going to uh, guide us through. And um, this unfinished task in particular uh, comes out in the, the end of Matthew's gospel, the passage that was just read, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, where <clears throat> the risen Lord <clears throat> encounters the 11 surviving disciples on a mountain in Galilee where he had told them to meet him. And I picture that always with this particular mountain in view because this is the highest mountain on the Sea of Galilee, Mount, um, Mount Arbel. And actually, from this picture, you are looking at Capernaum, where Jesus lived uh, during the time of his ministry in Galilee. Uh, just a few miles away, uh, his disciples had, had been in this territory a lot, and it may, may well be that Mount Arbel was the place where they stood. And on this picture, you can actually see a present-day road. That's, uh, that's also an ancient road. Uh, the Via Maris was a road that ran along the sea in Israel uh, from Egypt and then split in Megiddo, as the map shows, and one went up toward Lebanon and further north. And another road cut through the Megiddo Valley and headed toward Mount Arbel and this part of, of Galilee. And then just a, before Capernaum, headed north up to uh, Damascus and on. This, these roads are the international highways. And I just picture Jesus on this mountain with his disciples, and he says to them, go to the nations. And those roads are beckoning them to, to go uh, on them. In Matthew 28, 16, and 19, we read, that Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I want to explore this passage along three lines. The uh, comment that some doubted, and I want to talk about that, some doubted, but others worshipped him uh, until they came to see him uh, that he really was the one who had been resurrected from the dead. And then secondly, uh, the command to make disciples and unpack that as part of the unfinished task that we still have today and the command to go to the nations. So we look at the next slide. Uh, we can see that all four Gospels point to the doubt of disciples after Jesus was crucified. They were devastated. And uh, Luke talks about disbelief of the disciples. They said, this sounds like some idle tale that he has been raised from the dead. In John's gospel, Thomas says, except 
I put my finger in his side, I will not believe. His doubt is overcome by encountering the, the risen Lord. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, that doubt is expressed in terms of fear by the women who met Jesus at the tomb. They are afraid. They don't know what all this means. And here in Matthew, then, we see that some doubted until Jesus came near. In the next slide, we, I want to point out that, there, that what the doubt was not about. And as I do this, I want to suggest to you that many uh, churches over the years have come to uh, believe these things, but the, the, the doubt wasn't about whether you should believe these things or not. Th these are given. Christian faith is not uh, uh, faith in these particular things. These are given. Of course we believe these things. Uh, the doubt was not about whether Jesus existed. They, they knew that. There was no question. The, G the, the doubt was not about whether he was good or whether he was a great teacher or whether he main, uh, ministered to the poor and the powerless. The doubt was not about whether he opposed false religion and injustice. And the doubt was not about whether he brought hope to many people. Yes, of course he did all of that, but that's not what they were doubting. Now, the opposite of their doubt was not simply faith and belief, but it was worship. And that worship comes from realizing that this one who had been crucified was raised by the power of God from the dead. No one had ever been raised from the dead before. And so the belief leads to worship. Yes, an acknowledgement as Thomas did in John 20, 28, uh, saying, uh, you are my Lord and my God. And so the opposite of doubt is that kind of faith. The uh, worship then was about whether Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Some people want to say, well, you know, he's sort of raised spiritually and didn't really rise from the dead physically. Christian faith is fundamentally based on the fact that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And it is that belief that has led to world missions. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. You see, the power of God was evident in the resurrection. And it's that same power that Jesus extends now to his disciples and say, in this power and authority, go and make disciples of all nations. The worship was about whether Jesus had actually overcome the gates of Hades or death. And the worship was about whether Christians will choose to live to, to uh, go on doubting Jesus' victory and fear of the world or under the authority and the power of the risen Lord Jesus to go and make disciples. Our next slide uh, brings our attention to an example of this. Winfred of Wessex in England in the 8th century uh, was the missionary who went to Germania and tried to uh, convert the Frisians. Many did come to belief. But he had a great opposition from those Germanic ancestors of mine and some of you. And he, uh, the, 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 the challenge was whether these, the gods of these Norsemen uh, would be greater than the god that was being presented 
by this Winfred, this Christian missionary. And eventually Winfred decided, the only thing I can do is chop down their sacred tree, which he did in this uh, uh, Fritzlar village, which is still around today. The St. Peter's Church is built on the site where the uh, tree was uh, uh, chopped down. The statue commemorates this. And uh, the expectation by the Germans was that their god thunder, Donar, uh, Thor, as he's sometimes called, would, would come and destroy him because he had attacked the power of their God. But it was the power of the resurrected Christ that went with, went with that's, that's interesting, went with Winford from Wessex <laughs> uh, to the Germans. And many came to faith in him. The belief led to worship, led and boldness and led to mission. And the boldness was there for him to challenge others with the truth of the gospel. Another example in the next slide, uh, my own parents were missionaries in South Africa from 1951. And early on when they were uh, about 23 and 22 years old, uh, recently married, recently arrived missionaries, they went into the village of Maleppos in the northern Transvaal. And there they uh, had a ministry among the Bapedi tribe of this village, a village like this. It's not the actual village, but this is uh, the Sutu huts. And uh, people listened to them for a while, and they were interested, but one day when my parents went out there, they, uh, none of the people came to listen. And the elders met them and said, you talk about a powerful God but uh, we, we, we want to see if this is true. And they pointed to a hut, a makeshift hut, where a young woman was placed, and this is called a death hut in the culture, set aside from the tribe to uh, die there and so that the rest of the tribe would not get sick. Nobody went near the death hut. And they said to my parents, if your God can raise this girl from her deathbed, then we will believe. Now my parents realized they had no option but to go in. And they did believe in the resurrection power of Christ, but they knew that not everyone is always healed. So they crawled in through the little opening and they said that this, there was a terrible stench in there and it was dark. And they said to each other, this is the moment when either God uh, heals this young woman and raises her up from here so that the rest of the tribe will listen to the gospel, or our ministry's finished here. And so they prayed. And they prayed not necessarily with faith that that would happen, but rather with faith in the one who said go, in the power of the resurrection and in my authority, and uh, proclaim this gospel. They left. A week later, they came back, and a young girl came running. It was the girl. Still touches my heart. A great ministry was opened up in that area. It was God's mission. He was in control of it. It wasn't my parents making it happen, but they were just faithful to go in the power of Jesus Christ to which 
each of us are also called in one way or another to proclaim this message of the risen Lord, the power of God. Let's move on to the next slide. I promise not to cry anymore. Uh, and uh, move on to the second point of uh, the call to make disciples. Uh, the call to make disciples, first of all, has to do with baptism. And here we see some baptismal fonts from the early church days showing the spread of Christianity throughout the known world at the time. And baptism signified two things. Firstly, uh, that people uh, came to commit themselves to the Christian God. It was only the Christian God. Even uh, Jews who had believed in God had to come to faith and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And secondly, baptism has to do with uh, becoming part of the one uh, church of God, the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. And so uh, the mission uh, involves several things. I want to go over six things that mission involves from this passage. And the first three things are... Mission involves evangelism, going out and sharing the news. And it involves conversion, people being baptized. And thirdly, church planting, as they're baptized not as individual Christians uh, to go on on their own, but to become part of the church, to become part of the church. And so these are the first three things we learn from our passage about missions. As we move on, then we can look at the... Um, uh, one example of this, more recently, uh, as the Anglican Church... Now, this is a heavy slide for you. I want to point out two things. But the Anglican Church, you can see in the 1900, was mostly a British church, the Church of England. It went, had, had gone out and, uh, with, uh, in the 19th century, especially in the 20th century. And by 2005 you can see that the African church grew. The African church, uh, Anglicans, were about 7 or 8 million back in the 70s. Today, there are over 55 million Anglican Africans. So the church has grown. But also, this slide illustrates that the church has shrunk in some areas. And this, too, is part of the um, unfinished task. Uh, in England, the mother church of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, uh, in 2017, for the first time, uh, recorded that less than 2 million people were in attendance. Less than 2 million. And so, uh, the, and the church is divided, and uh, there are new uh, orthodox versions of Anglicanism uh, growing up in England as uh, many problems face that church today. You see, it's not just a matter of going to new lands like in Africa and planting the church, uh, the, but the church sometimes has to be replanted uh, in areas where, where it has uh, swerved away from the truth of the gospel. Let's uh, look at the next slide. And uh, here, then, we can see that this is not only a matter of 
baptizing and making converts, but also a matter of teaching. Uh, the call to mission is a call to teach all that I have commanded you, says Jesus. And I would suggest to you that this involves two more things in missions. Firstly, it involves uh, uh, Bible translation, because Jesus' teaching was based on Scripture, and the apostles' teaching was based on Scripture. They were saying, these events that happened in Jesus Christ are a fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And so the, the teaching was, was uh, directing people, like we are directed today, to the Bible, to God's Word. And so not only does it need to be translated, but it needs to be taught. And so um, let's, let's look at a couple slides then to make this point. First of all, about the translation in the next slide. Uh, we see that most recent, the most recent figures that Wycliffe has put out, and we have some Wycliffe missionaries in our congregation, but I don't see them here today. Um, but there we are. <laughs> Thank you. This is the latest statistic that I get. It changes all the time um, of where the need for Bible translations is, is uh, still present. Any, any of you interested in Bible translation? 1,636 languages still need translation. Uh, on the next slide, then, I would just want to point out the need for uh, teaching the unfinished task is also here. Uh, it's estimated, and these are estimates, that 85% of churches in the world are led by men and women who have no formal training in theology or ministry. It's also estimated that if every Christian training institute in the world operated at 120% capacity, less than 10% of the unequipped leaders would be trained. Also, Eight out of ten nations, nationals rather, uh, eight out of ten nationals who come to the West to receive training never return home. This is why I frequently travel to South Africa to be involved in theological education. Uh, some, some should come to the U.S. for certain reasons, but most training needs to take place in context uh, for, for and, and this is one of the reasons why. And then finally, uh, leaders um, from every non-Western region say that num the num their number one need is in leadership training. We heard that call, Wendy and I, years ago to Croatia, where that was exactly the words I heard from the uh, Croatian uh, who started the Bible college. He said, our number one need is theological education. And we went there to start a master's program in, in biblical studies. So the need is there to continue this work of making disciples. Uh, and let's go on then to the last of the three points I wanted to draw out from these four verses in Matthew that we're called to go and make disciples of all nations. So sixthly, missions is about going to the nations to make disciples. In our Gospel, Matthew, our reading at the end of the chapter, we can trace this development from uh, the restoration of Israel in Jesus' ministry to the inclusion of the nations. In Matthew 10, 5 through 6, we hear Jesus sending out the 12 to the villages of Israel. And he says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? It's a 
fulfillment of the prophecy that Israel would be restored. Restored from what? It's the prophets used to talk about uh, Israel being sent into captivity because of their sins and then being regathered from the nations. And so Jesus picks up this part of the prophetic message where he says, come back from captivity. Not literally, they're living in Israel, but he says, come back from captivity and come to live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is what he meant when he sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom in Israel. But Matthew doesn't stop there. Uh, we read on in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then, in, then we come to our passage, which is the Great Commission. So now go. Now that it all has been accomplished, the cross and the resurrection, go. Go to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, the 8th century prophet, B.C. prophet, uh, writes this. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the basis of why the church goes out to the nations and doesn't just stay where it is. Um, the next slide shows that another passage in Isaiah. Uh, and interestingly enough, this is how Isaiah ends, just as Matthew ends with a great commission. And I think the two are related. And uh, in this, on the right side of this slide, is a picture of uh, uh, a mural in the capital city of Persepolis of the Persian Empire in the 6th century, uh, the Persian king ruled over a great territory. Uh, in fact, there, there, were, there was more than one capital for Persia. It was such a vast empire. And in Persepolis, uh, there are stairs that go up gradually to the throne room of the king of Persia. And along the wall of these stairs is this kind of uh, in, uh, chiseling uh, of different nations coming to the king. Uh, you'll notice the um, Bactrian camel at the top there. That indicates some people from Central Asia, uh, most likely. And you can tell by their dress and by different things about them that they're coming from different nations of the world. It's not just people coming uh, from the surrounding area, but from all over the world. And here's the idea here. This is incredible picture that we get from this, is the nations are coming and they're bearing gifts to the king. Now, in that light, read an earlier century, Isaiah saying something very similar. Isaiah 66, 18 through 20. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Think about those 11 disciples being commissioned in the same way. To Tarshish, Put, Lud, Tubal, and Javan, all countries you know very well. Uh, these are the countries in the far-flung areas of the known world in the 8th century. Um, 
to the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and in, uh, dro on, on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. The ingathering of the nations as the result of mission. And what is it that these Gentiles are bringing to the king in Isaiah? It's the Jews. The treasures of God's people are being brought back by the Gentiles. But that means not only a restoration of Israel, but an inclusion of the Gentiles under the worldwide reign of God. That is the goal of missions. Let's look at the next slide here and see um, that uh, the task is indeed unfinished these many centuries later. Uh, in, on the left side, you see how the population of the world has increased, and it's actually increased exponentially uh, recently. Uh, in, it's estimated that in the time of Jesus, there were 200 million people in the world, and this great commission was made. And then you can see how it has grown and grew kind of slowly, but look at how it has picked up. 1900, there were 1.6 billion people in the world. Uh, in 1999, there were 6 billion people in the world. And uh, in, in our day, it's about 8 billion people that are in the world. You see, there are more unreached people in our day than in the first century. There are more unreached people today than in the first century. The task remains unfinished. John R. Mott at the beginning of the 1900s led the student volunteer movement and was involved in the YMCA. And uh, the motto of the student volunteer movement in missions was the evangelization of the world in this generation. And it wasn't one of those ideas that we need to finish the task of missions in our generation, but rather the challenge is to every generation to evangelize the world. And this is what we face today. We have not completed the task. It is still a challenge for us. You can see where some of the challenge is on that other uh, picture there uh, in, in large numbers. But God calls people to all parts of the world to complete the task where it is needed. And the next slide then, uh, just quickly. Um, going to all the world in our day now includes formerly Christian regions like Europe. And here you can see how uh, Christianity in Europe is, uh, uh, has been uh, over the past century declining dramatically. Um, and this then just indicates that we, we, we shouldn't think, oh, we can tick that country off and move on to another one. But, but uh, we have to assess the call in light of the needs each generation as well. Uh, re according to Pew, in 2015, 31.2% of the world claimed to be Christians. 31.2%. 24.1% claimed to be Muslims. And so uh, the task 
um, is indeed one that challenges us today. Now, just look at the next slide here quickly, and we'll make another point about this. And that is that uh, it, in our day, missions is not only about going, but as Andrew Walls has said, the great uh, missionary um, scholar, uh, that the, one of the most unique things that's taking place in our day is immigration to the West. And in South Africa, we experience that too, a great immigration from parts of Africa to, to South Africa. But we, we read about this all the time in the news and hear about it, and people are fearful of it. But God is doing a great thing. He's bringing people from countries that would not let in missionaries to us and giving us an opportunity to share the gospel in a context that still allows quite a bit of freedom to share the gospel with people. Um, Islam is growing worldwide. Over 28% of births in England and Wales are from mothers born in another country, and many of them are Muslim. At the current rate, by 2050, who's going to be alive here in 2050? I don't think I will. So this task is for you to consider. Uh, Christianity and Islam will have about equal numbers of adherents in the world. And by 2070, if we stay on the same trajectory that we're on, uh, Islam will be the world's largest religion. Islam grows through immigration, as this points out, and you can, uh, the slide isn't that clear, but we have France, 8.8% of France is now Muslim, 8.1% in Sweden, 11.1% in Bulgaria, and so forth. And uh, the, the trajectories are going this way because there's negative birth rate of nationals and uh, positive birth rate um, among Muslims, let alone the immigration. Uh, it grows through immigration and control of the infrastructure and through war and building mosques and have, gaining protected status in the West. Uh, but here's an Here's a wonderful story in the background, and I hope you're picking up on this from different sources. There are many stories of conversions and Muslims having visions of Jesus or, or of Mary uh, and coming to faith or being told, go to this church and hear what they have to say. And so there are wonderful stories I've been hearing from different sources, um, especially, I think, in Egypt and Iran. There are many stories that I've been hearing about this. So it's God's mission. We don't need to worry about statistics like this. We can rather see them as what God is doing in the world. And then the question becomes, what's our part in that? Okay, the next slide. Um, going, uh, there's a, is there one just before that? No? Okay, well, let me, let me conclude then. We've, we've been looking at six aspects of what mission involves. And uh, just from this text, uh, mission involves evangelism. Some of you are evangelists. The early church, the church itself did evangelistic work by inviting people into their homes. And uh, that doesn't require you to go on the street corners and preach. That's, very few personalities are like that. But, in, but inviting people into your homes and sharing with them. Conversion, which is God's work, 
but it's a process of discipleship that we can enter into. Church planting, Bible translation, teaching, which is both discipleship as well as training people for ministry, and going, or being part of the church that goes. And so I leave you with some very challenging comments from evangelical persons of uh, the 19th and 20th century. And I ask you just to consider these and say, Lord, how is it that I can be part of this great commission? And how is it that this church can be part of the great commission? And how is it that this denomination can be part of the great commission? So Carl F.H. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, said, it will not do to say that you have no special call to go. With the command of Christ to go and preach the gospel, you need rather to ascertain if you have a special call to stay at home. A.B. Simpson said, unless I am sure... I am doing more at home to send the gospel abroad than I can do abroad. I am bound to go. Arthur Pearson said, If missions languish, it is because the whole life of godliness is feeble. The command to go everywhere and preach to everybody is not obeyed until the will is lost by self-surrender in the will of God. Living, praying and that is a great ministry of mission, giving and going will always be found together. The health of the church can be monitored in the health of its commitment to the Great Commission. An introverted church, said John R. W. Stott, the great Anglican minister and evangelical scholar, an introverted church preoccupied with its own survival has virtually forfeited the right to be a church, for it is denying a major part of its own being, as a planet which ceases to be in orbit is no longer a planet, so a church which ceases to be in mission is no longer a church. And with these challenges, then, we reflect on Matthew 28:16-20, on the fact that the task of mission remains incomplete. And our challenge then is to step up and enter that same command of God, uh, to, to obey that same command of God, that we are to go, to make disciples by baptizing and teaching everything that Jesus has commanded, and to remember that it is in the power and authority of Jesus Christ that this mission is accomplished. Amen.